Welcome to Twill and another COVID-19 law and policy briefing produced by Public Health Law Watch, a George Consortium initiative housed at Northeastern University School of Law. Thank you also to our co-sponsors, the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University, the Network for Public Health Law, Change Lab Solutions, and the APHA Law Section. As you should know by now, our goal is to provide expert legal analysis during the COVID-19 pandemic. For more information on the COVID legal response, please check out our report assessing legal responses to COVID-19. In that report, 50 national experts assess the U.S. policy response and provide recommendations on how federal, state, and local leaders can better respond to COVID-19, as well as to future pandemics. You can find volume one of our assessment at covid19policyplaybook.org, and volume two will be published in the spring. On Twitter, please use the hashtag COVID Law Briefing for any questions or comments in response to this briefing. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law. Joining me today are my co-host, Don Levin, National Director of the Network for Public Health Law and a fellow editor of our Assessing Legal Responses report. Great working with you as ever, Donna. Micah Berman, Associate Professor of Public Health and Law at The Ohio State University's College of Public Health and Michael E. Moritz College of Law. And Dorit Reese, Professor of Law and the James Edgar Hervey, 50 Chair of Litigation at UC Hastings Law. So making a meme-like appearance in many critical reports has been the observation that vaccines don't save people, vaccinations do. Indeed, the American Health Association, Hospital Association has estimated that 1.8 million people need to be vaccinated daily from Jan 1st to May 31st to reach widespread immunity by the summer, with the current pace at more than 1 million people per day below that that a state struggle with the last mile to the arm. So Michael, let's start with you. What's your assessment of the vaccine rollout so far? And what level of confidence do you have in the announced Biden officials and their apparent plan? Thanks, Nick. Well, this is obviously a big transition week uh, with the, the new administration coming in and, and hopefully turning the page. I mean, under the Trump administration, the vaccine rollout has been uh, perfectly consistent with the Trump administration administration's response to COVID in general, which is to say uh, fairly catastrophic. Uh, the, the past administration's approach was really to, to uh, look for and ask for good headlines uh, without actually doing the work um, to uh, ensure success. And so, you know, it, it made broad pronouncements about uh, how many people were going to get vaccinated um, without actually doing the planning and providing the, the funding and the logistical support and so forth and so forth to, um, to make that anywhere near possible. And, and the, the challenges were, of course, not at all a surprise. State and local officials have been jumping up and down and screaming about the, the need for, for support uh, for, for months. But uh, the, the President Trump and, and people on his team uh, were literally tweeting that, you know, the states just needed to figure it out and, and make it happen. Uh, so it's it's a, a new era now, hopefully. We have a, a new uh, team coming in. Um, I, I think there are, I don't know all of them, but the people that I, I am aware of on, on the team that um, President Biden has put together are um, are very impressive, and, and I have a lot of confidence in, in them. Um, and I, I think they understand that getting vaccine distribution right may well be uh, the most important thing that the Biden presidency 
ever does. And, you know, I, I have every expectation that they will treat it that way. Um, but I really uh, would not want to be in their shoes. The, the, the challenging challenges are, are quite quite uh, daunting, especially now with, you know, the our overburdened and overwhelmed public health and hospital staff dealing with surges in COVID cases at the same time. They're trying to uh, ramp up the vaccine rollout. They're dealing with the fact that, you know, some of the vaccines that have been administered so far are the, you know, the, the relatively easy ones. Uh, we're, you know, we know where hospital staff are. We know where nursing homes are. Uh, reaching everyone else is going to be uh, more of a challenge. And and they have uh, set out a huge uh, goal for themselves. The, the announced goal is, you know, 100 million million vaccinations in 100 days. Uh, as you said, that's going to require really, really ramping up uh, capacity from where we are now. So the challenges are, are immense uh, that they're facing. So one of the uh, leaders of the new team, Jeff Zians, has reported to um, uh, set up sort of four buckets of things that the new administration needs to do. Um, uh, loosen the restrictions on who can get vaccinated and when, set up more sites, get more personnel, and use the federal government to increase vaccine supply. Um, uh, with Defense Production Act, presumably. Is there one of those that you think is the hardest to achieve? Yeah, and, and he is the same person who, who was tasked with fixing the healthcare.gov rollout after its its initial rollout. So he has some experience with um, trying to do uh, do these jobs. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think those are the, um, the right buckets to be thinking about for the most part. I mean, the other big piece is equity, um, which, which they have, um, the, the team has consistently said is is important to them as well and and, and will be a focus. I, mean, I think there's been a lot of focus in the last couple months about you know, how to allocate the the scarce resources in terms of vaccines and, and not enough focus on um, how to dramatically ramp up the the distributions of vaccines when the supply is is actually there. Um, so you know I, I think um, you know we're going to have to change the way that we do things. We're going to have to think about you know broader um, community level provision and and mass vaccination sites that have have high throughput uh, and that that's going to come with a whole other set of challenges the other other piece that I think um, I didn't see as much of in that plan that I think is is important to be thinking about is is the communication side um, there's you know there there's the countering disinformation part that we can can talk about but but beyond that just the the regular communication part of just letting people know where and how uh, to get vaccinated once once we have the infrastructure set up to do that um, you know, I I really hope we can be in a world soon where, you know, everywhere you go, both online and in person, um, you're seeing reminders uh, about the need to get vaccinated and you know, connections to the resources to, to help you do that. So I, I think that's a really important piece of it as well. Questions for Dart. Um, what can employers, schools and governments do to encourage uptake? And are vaccine mandates lawful in that effort? And is paying the reluctant any kind of solution? So the first thing is is, and your question set it up nicely, the difference between can and should. Employers, governments have quite a range of options and I'm going to go through what they can do, but they want to remind everybody that the fact that, for example, you can mandate a vaccine doesn't always mean you should. So what can be done? We've already seen some really nice ideas coming out. Uh, we've seen some employers suggest, give incentives such as time, uh, paid hours for people who vaccinate, uh, direct payments, and there's nothing, I don't see anything uh, wrong with that because we know that employers have other wellness plans and uh, encouraging workers to get the vaccines is a step towards their wellness and other ones. I think employers need to think in on uh, at least three levels, education, access, and uh, in incentive structure. So on education, it's not the main, primary 
necessarily the job of private employers to educate workers on uh, vaccines, but they can, for example, make it easily accessible uh, to have good sources on, uh, to answer people with concerns about the vaccine. More on top for employers, and I'll talk about government in a moment, more on top for employers is uh, access. We know that access in, is an issue. Large employers, for example, can double help by uh, offering places that can be a vaccination clinic that can help both their employees, giving them easy access, and others by having locations that can serve that way. Uh, the most common thing employers are probably considering is incentive structure within their employment place. And employers have quite a bit of leeway. We know that historically employers have mandated other vaccines. For example, healthcare employers have a history of mandating influenza vaccine. Some restaurants mandated hepatitis A vaccine, especially after outbreaks. And like other workplace health and safety rules, that's within their power with some limits. In this case, the four relevant limits are there's a legal and a question on whether you can mandate a vaccine under an emergency use authorization. It's unclear because this is the first time we had widespread vaccine under an EUA. So we don't really have a precedent and the language in the law is extremely vague. So there's uncertainty there. If there's a unionized workforce, you may have to uh, negotiate with the union before you can mandate a vaccine. That will depend on the collective bargaining agreement. The American with Disabilities Act means that if an employee has a medical contraindication that qualifies as a disability, you have to accommodate them unless it's an undue burden. And that means that you may, you won't necessarily treat them the same way as everybody else, but you may uh, have to take steps to allow them to work within conditions that preserve everybody's safety. For example, if you have an option of remote or on-site work, maybe the people who can't be vaccinated would be safer in the remote category, or maybe they should wear extra PPE. And under the Civil Rights Act of 1964, if an employee has a sincere religious subjection to a vaccine, you also have to accommodate unless it's an undue burden. But undue burden here is a much lower bar. It just means no more than minimal cost. So employers can, in theory, say vaccinate or I'll fire you under uh, unless they run into one of these caveats. But employers may well consider that that's not the best approach and they may uh, go with a different approach such as man, uh, vaccinate or wear extra PPE, vaccinate and I'll give you a reward, as you said, payment, uh, paid hours and so forth. And that might be a better option for many employers. Uh, again, this is going to be a, a case-by-case question. Sometimes it might be the right thing to say, vaccinate or I'll fire you. You have a nursing home with especially vulnerable patients. Uh, you, um, the staff is the one that goes into the community and come back. It may make sense to say, staff, if you don't vaccinate, you can't work with these vulnerable patients. In other cases, it might make less sense. Government can also uh, require vaccine within limits. The 1905 case of Jacobson was about a vaccine mandate, but it's been a long time since 1905. And for example, under the current Supreme Court jurisprudence, a, a, vaccine, a general vaccine mandate without a religious exemption might run into legal uh, challenges. Uh, for government, my view is that narrow is probably safer legally. Uh, a narrow mandate, for example, in 2019, during the measles outbreak, New York required vaccine for three, New York City, for three neighborhoods with a thousand dollar fine. That was focused on the neighborhoods where the outbreak was worse. So here too, narrow would be better. So Michael, as you alluded to before, the uh, the outgoing administration has been stuck in Groundhog Day, right? Uh, first with PPA, then with testing, then vaccine distribution. Uh, once again, we've had these flaws in the, the, the federal state handoff. Uh, departed Secretary Azar's statement that vaccine supplies would depend on state performance. Once again, seemed to be encouraging a sort of Darwinian competition among the states. Uh, is there a better public health playbook to manage this relationship?
relationship? Or is it more about people than a playbook? Well, I mean, first of all, I, I think that hopefully we're in agreement that that, that approach of um, punishing the states that are already struggling is is quite backwards. Um, I mean, we, we need to get this vaccination rollout right everywhere. Um, punishing the states that are are struggling is, is really um, counterproductive. And it looks like the, the Biden team is going to quickly scrap that approach. Um, so, so that's good news. Now, obviously, relationships are important, but you know, have, having a playbook uh, would be a good place to start. Um, you know, this is an administration that you know, literally the past administration literally threw out the playbook. Um, you know, so, um, you know, the, the Biden team is coming in, and, and they have um, they have a lot of plans, a lot of ideas. Um, you now, ultimately, as a kind of legal and practical matter, it is up to the, the states and local jurisdictions to um, decide how distribution is going to work on the ground. But um, the Biden administration can come in and you know figure out how to use the awesome power that the federal government has to uh, support that and provide plans and, and provide um, structures for doing that. So, I mean, for example, what is what is in the new plan, which will take authorization by Congress, is um, funding to hire 100,000 community health workers. Uh, one of the things that I probably should have emphasized before is you know one one of the bottlenecks is personnel. Um, having the people to actually provide um, the vaccinations and provide the infrastructure for um, doing those, um, you know, processing people through that and, and so forth. So uh, what is um, exciting about the proposal is, at least in the proposal, the idea is to, to hire community health workers, uh, not just uh, on the short term, but but actually to make those uh, permanent positions. I, I mean, I'm skeptical about whether or not that will actually happen, but I, I really do um, like that vision and um, the commitment to it. So I, I think there are um, you know, a lot of things that the federal government can do with its power. The difficulty here is that you know it, it is way too late uh, to be starting that process of, of getting the funding and, and starting the planning. So there, there's a lot of catch up that we need to be doing. So, Nora, if we talk about vaccine hesitancy, um, we know that recently there have been press reports suggesting that several anti-vaccination groups received a total of $850,000 in loans from the Federal Paycheck Protection Program. So one of the questions is, is the anti-vaccination movement a serious threat to the COVID rollout? And how is it being framed given that the vaccines so far seem really remarkably safe and uh, effective? And what kind of messaging is effective to actually encourage vaccination? And I would also ask that given that there is a lot of vaccine hesitancy for Black and Brown people, um, and that's an issue based on history and, and lack of trust. Or do you have any successful, any specific thoughts on successful efforts to make the case for vaccine vaccination for these for this population? That's a, a several topics coming under this heading, and I'll go through them in turn. First, you made a really important distinction between vaccine hesitancy and the anti-vaccine movement. People with concerns aren't the anti-vaccine movement, and as you're suggesting, and I think correctly, we need to approach them differently. As you're also pointing out, we have an anti-vaccine movement who is organized, well-funded, and uh, working to create uh, fear, uncertainty, and doubt about vaccines. The anti-vaccine movement organized to create fear about COVID-19 vaccine as soon as the pandemic started. They've been promoting claims since uh, at least March, I think as early as January, but definitely since March last year. Uh, and they've had years to plan this. They've had over a year to prepare for the vaccine. They've already been making the basic claims are going to go forward with then. And although their tactics haven't changed and they have real limits in the sense that they can't really think around their biases, in 
in a time of vulnerability where people are nervous already, uh, they have the potential to increase hesitancy and fear. So some of the things that they've been doing uh, is play, downplaying COVID, arguing COVID is not a real threat, already speaking about vaccine risk before the vaccines were anywhere in the process, and they're repeating the same claim. So for one, one example, one thing they're doing now is amplifying any online story claiming a vaccine harm, regardless of how non-credible, including stories of death that did not happen, um, or including, for example, there was a, a, an outbreak in a nursing home that killed 24 people, an outbreak of COVID that the anti-vaccine movement presented as caused by the vaccine. Uh, they claim that there are alternative to vaccines that are being hidden. HCQ is a classic example. Uh, and they claim that there's a general conspiracy to use COVID to uh, undermine civil liberties. So that's the big heading of what they're saying. And they're doing it in a number of ways, including uh, really amplifying. They, they, they have a very, although small, their group is very dedicated. So anything that's shared by them is bound to be shared by, let's say, 10,000 people, which is given the US population, a small number, but online, a mass is. So they have reach, they can promote claims that look scary, and they can reach people who aren't sure and increase their fear. So yes, they are a real threat. I'll get to your point about what can we do in a moment, but I want to address your point about uh, the Black community first. The Black community has very good reason to mistrust uh, the medical establishment. We don't have time to earn their trust before the vaccines are rolled out. What needs to happen is that people that they do trust already, that have earned the trust, get the information they need to communicate on vaccine. In other words, this has to be done by leaders in the Black community. The trust that was broken over decades can't be fixed in a month. And uh, we need to work with uh, Black doctors and Black leaders to give them the tools they need uh, to um, talk to members of the community. They already, so there's uh, doctors that are doing wonderful work already on social media. Uh, Dr. Kimberly Manning has done wonderful videos explaining in very accessible language why she decided to take the vaccine, why she thinks it's uh, low risk, uh, and other uh, doctors have done a lot of outreach. They need more funding and more support. Going back to Michael's point about we're not doing enough funding, uh, we need to support the people who can reach communities that have reasons to mistrust us uh, rather than try and tell them something that they have no reason to trust. Uh, going back to your, your other point of what, what messaging can we use? First of all, pre-banking is really important. So if you know that these claims might come up, warn people already. These are the kind of claims you might hear. So for example, in Science Magazine, Derek Lowy published an article a month ago saying we're going to see deaths after COVID-19 vaccine by coincidence alone. We need to be ready for them to be attributed to the vaccine. People need to know that it's coming if we can. If not, quick debunking is important. Publicizing the good information. We have three federal committees that over that looked closely, three federal, federal advisory committees with people from outside the administration that looked closely at this vaccine, went through the data, evaluated it, and uh, supported it. So we have extensive oversight, not only from inside the administration. We have strong data here, as you're saying, but a lot of people don't know what the data actually says. So make it accessible, make sure it's transparent, but it's transparent in ways that are clear. For example, VERS table, Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System table, can be used to say, this is the vaccine is really dangerous. Do handouts that explain, A, what VERS is that anyone can report, and B, that most of the harm there are a one-day thing, not a long-term harm. So we can do more. There's already a lot being done, and there too, funding to amplify would be helpful. So time presses, and let us finish with your answers to one incredibly unfair question. Based on antibodies and the vaccination rollout, give me the month in 2021 when we reach herd immunity. Micah. Oh, I have no idea. Um, I mean, I it, it's going to take so many different 
different pieces falling in place to to make this work seamlessly. Um, I I'm really hesitant to give uh, uh, an answer to that. Uh, Let me narrow question. down the question. Uh, It'll be 2021. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it'll be I think it'll be 2021, um, but I, I can't narrow it much more than that. Darren, uh, I think by July anyone who wants the vaccine would be able to get it, and by that time I think we'll be at least in some community nearing herd immunity. I also think it'll vary by community. Well, thank you to my guests and to my excellent co-host, and to you all for listening today. For the next few weeks, we'll be broadcasting here on Twitter every Tuesday and Thursday at noon just to go to at P-H-L-A-W-Watch or search for a hashtag COVID law briefing on Twitter to find us. Recordings are also going to be available on public on the Public Health Law Watch website. And I archive the shows out at the Week in Health Law podcast, which is at www.twill.com. We'll see you next time. Please wear a mask, distance yourself, stay safe. And if you're eligible for a vaccine, please go get it. Thank you.